0: So we're continuing today with the, what I call the dinner party dialogues. You find in the Gospels that Jesus was often invited to dinner, and when he showed up, he usually blew the party up some way or said something that the host was just uh, really uh, thinking, boy, I don't know if I should have invited him here or not. Um, and so I want to look at Luke chapter 5, if you have a Bible or access to one. If you turn to Luke chapter 5 at verse uh, 27... Uh, where Jesus calls Levi, um, who is a tax collector. And I'll go ahead and tell you just to uh, arouse a little more interest. You know, Levi, this Levi is the man that most of you know as Matthew, Matthew the apostle. So this is a a tax collector who has this saving encounter with Jesus Christ and becomes one of the apostles. At least most scholars think that. You can find that out in Matthew chapter 10 in verses 2 and 3 that says Matthew the tax collector when it's listing uh, the apostles. So let's pray uh, and ask the Holy Spirit that inspired these words to help us to understand them and apply them to our hearts. Father God, um, we confess to you that all too often your word rolls off of us like water rolls off of a duck's back. And uh, we pray that uh, that wouldn't happen this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, let this word be living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of uh, joint and marrow, of bone and spirit, and uh, help us to discern where our hearts are and help all of us, Lord, to flee to you. Use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way, the path uh, to you, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. Luke 5 at verse 27. After this, he, that is, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade. This is God's Word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. You know, it's not altogether arrogant when we think about other people that we expect them to think like we think and um, be like we are and see the world as we see it. Uh, We look at the world through our own eyes, and that's our perspective, and what other perspective could we have, really? Um, And it's also not altogether unlikely that when it comes to choosing friends, uh, we're going to choose people that are like us, because most of us are kind of like ourselves in one way or another. And after all, we are normal, right? (laughs) So other people should be like us, and we want to choose people that are like we are, right? That said, one of the marks of maturity is the ability and the willingness to not expect that everybody will be like us, look like us, think like us, see the world like us. And also, one of the marks of maturity is to have friends who have different viewpoints, different ways of seeing. Uh, we see it as good and enriching that we have people in our circle of friends that look at things differently and can help us. Now, I'm not talking about a postmodern relativism in saying that, that, it, that believes there's no truth, okay? But I'm thinking about what the gospel tells us when I say that and how Christ calls to himself friends who are Vastly different from himself, both for his glory and for the joy of those he calls. Indeed, the gospel impels you and me to have friends different from us and to reach out to the neglected and to the despised and to the rejected. Why do we know that? Because God did. God reaches out to the neglected, to the despised, to the rejected. And we should too. And the church should as a group, uh, as as Ben was praying. Now, we don't naturally desire to do that. But in obedience to the gospel, there is a joy, a richness, a fulfillment, a fullness of life that's unobtainable by living for self and our self-centered natural inclinations. In this passage... Jesus reaches out to someone, Levi, who is vastly different from himself, from himself ontologically. One is God, creator, one is creature. Uh, They're different morally. Jesus is perfect, Uh, Levi is far from perfect. They're different in their abilities. Levi, as we will see, is despised and rejected by his own culture. And probably, we can't be sure, probably he is racked with guilt about who he is and what he has done. But in this process, this man is profoundly changed. And he got up and he left the precious, what he formerly thought was precious, behind and he followed Jesus. And he gave a feast for Jesus and for those who were like himself. And in the process, these religious people, the Pharisees, are exposed as self-righteous, right? And Jesus gives a proverbial truth in verse 31 and a mission statement in verse 32. Let me give you just a little sidebar here about this whole thing and about dinner party dialogues and uh, about the passage that was read for the New Testament reading, which was Jesus uh, going from the... uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee from the land of the Gerasenes across to Capernaum and and the things on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And this point. This is a little sidebar. You get this for no extra charge, okay? Ministry should not be limited to set times and places and programs. Certainly not to church buildings, not even to Friday night deck gatherings. Uh, Ministry can be done by the side of the road. Ministry can be done where Jesus is coming along and and there's Levi sitting at the tax booth. It can be done in church buildings in small groups, don't get me wrong, but it can be done anywhere at any time. Friday night, Sally and I were out uh, working on a, uh, trimming a, a, what what is Heather, a hedge? Whatever it is, we were trimming Heather in the front yard and the neighbor came over and before it was over, he had told us his story, raised a Mormon, went on a mission and I told him my story about Jesus and how Jesus had saved me. Friday afternoon, delayed supper, but it was worth it, right? It's worth it. Because I have to tell him about Jesus. Ministry opportunities are out there. Uh, ministry it can be done in more places than a building like this or an announced meeting in the bulletin, okay? So if you'll look back in Luke 5 just a little bit, in verse 1... Um, Jesus is standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee, okay? And in chapter 5, verse 12, he's in one of the cities, okay? And and here, um, he's walking along In Matthew, Levi, is at the tax booth. Okay, I've got two main points. And the first one is this. There's revealed here an astounding and irritating Conversion, an astounding and, to some people, irritating conversion, okay? Uh, G, G, Matthew, Levi, is a tax collector. And so he was in uh, contract, under contract with the Romans to collect taxes. And it was a pretty corrupt, evil system. Uh, the way it worked in rough outline is that Uh, Levi was charged to collect taxes in a certain amount and all he could get over that was his. Well, that's a bad system, right? That's a bad system because he's going to steal and extort. And, and, and that's the way he was perceived by his countrymen. You've probably been told that. Jew, Jews who were in league with the Romans to collect taxes were among the most hated and vilified in Jewish culture. They were considered traitors, Uh, Sanhedrin 25 says that they were thieves. They were considered thieves. In other places in the New Testament, it talks about tax collectors and prostitutes. In another place, it talks about tax collectors and Gentiles. Tax collectors could not serve as witnesses in court. And they were excommunicated from the synagogues. You take a job as a tax collector, you're out of here. You're excommunicated. But interestingly... If you look back in Luke chapter 3, when when John the Baptist is baptizing, and John the Baptist's baptism was called what? A baptism of repentance, okay? So John the Baptist is baptizing, and who comes out to him to be baptized? Some were tax collectors. Hmm, interesting. Why did they come? Well, probably because they felt their guilt and their sin And their need. So he's at the tax booth. Doesn't it say that? He's sitting at the tax booth. He's in the very act of being a traitor, being a thief, doing all those bad things that he did. And Jesus very simply and directly walks up and says to him, Follow me. It's like we walk up to somebody and say, Follow Jesus except this is more direct. Now, this is an imperative, but there are places in, the, in Luke's gospel, we'll see some of them in chapter 14, where the call to follow Jesus is not presented as an imperative. It's presented as an option and an obligation. Um, sometimes a notification of something in Luke 14, they notify them, that the supper is now ready, and they're supposed to come. And that makes a lot of sense to me when I was a kid, and I'd be out playing, and my mother would come and, 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 and say to us, uh, supper's ready. I wouldn't turn to my brother and say, supper's ready, and we'd keep playing, right? Because the notification was not, oh, it's a piece of information you need. To say that supper was ready meant you better come to supper and you better come now. Right? Right. So whether it's an imperative or not an imperative is not the big issue. With God, an invitation to come is a command to come. And this really is a command. It's listed in the imperative. The gospel offer, and, and, and because we use the word offer, uh, we often present the gospel or we often think of the gospel it's a kind of a take it or leave it thing. You know, you can get your pizza with pepperoni or out of pepperoni. You have an option here. Okay? That is not what the gospel's presented. The gospel is presented as an imperative. And the gospel's presented as you are obligated to repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ, to come to Jesus and to follow Him. It's not just an option. But it's an obligation. It's an obligation to come. And that's good news. Why? Well, the good news, that's good news because it means that Jesus really wants us to come. There's so many of you, and, or you know people, that if you said to them, Jesus wants you to come to Himself, Jesus wants you to follow Him, many of them would say, I'm too sinful for that. I can't come. Why can I come? How could I do that? You don't know what I've done. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Now what? let me tell you, I'm going to draw this out a minute because I think we're, that many of us in Presbyterian Reformed churches are a little mistaken at this point, okay? He does not say to Matthew, to Levi, clean up your act and follow me. He doesn't say to him, repent and follow me. There is nothing preparatory that Levi must do, his first step is what? His first step is to follow Jesus. If I say to you, repent and follow Jesus, you might rightly say to me, how much must I first repent? How deeply must I first repent? How seriously must I first repent before I can follow Christ? And that is not the gospel. If I've got to prepare myself to be worthy to follow Christ, I'm lost. I'm lost. I'm without hope. The Pharisees would have said, if you'll quit tax collecting, you can come to the synagogue. If you will dress appropriately, you can follow Jesus. If you will stop X or start Y, then you can follow Jesus. That is not what he says. He says, follow me. Friends, that's what he says to you today. Follow me. If we will follow Jesus, then the changes will come, no doubt. But those changes follow after the following of Jesus. Nothing precedes. And that's good news because it means that any sinner can and should follow Jesus right now. You see, some sinners put themselves off the hook, get themselves off the hook this way. They say, "Well, I'm just I, I can't follow him right now. I'm I'm too good. I'm I'm too bad. I, I'm not good enough. I, I got to do this first or that 1st I've had people tell me that in my ministry. I can tell you stories about that. I was encouraging a farmer in, in Kentucky when I was in graduate school there. I said, "His name was John Gregory. That's his first two names, <laughs> Southern Kentucky." And 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 I said, "John Gregory, you need to come back to church." He said. I, I am pastor, but I've got to do X, Y, and Z first. I said, no, you don't. You need to come. You need to come. See, that's the way people respond. I've got to do X, Y, and Z first. I've got to clean up my act first. I can't follow Jesus now. That's wrong. That is just flat wrong. When I was a kid, um, I lived uh, three or 400 yards from a creek. Um, and uh, we used to play in that creek or around that creek. My mother hoped I wouldn't play in the creek, you understand, and, uh, because of water moccasins and everything. This is deep south. And um, one winter, very cold winter day, uh, we were back down in that area, and I legitimately, that is not on purpose, I fell in the creek. And I, I was soaked. I mean, it wasn't like I, my arm went in the creek. It wasn't like my elbow went in the creek or my leg went in the creek. All of me went in the creek. There was not a dry thread on me and it was a cold wind blowing. Now, my mother had cleaned house that morning, and when my my mother hated housework, there's some of you that would understand that, I'm sure, she just detested housework. We didn't live in a dirty house, but when she did housework, she detested it, and she would lecture my brother and me about how we should leave the house as clean as possible for as long as possible. Well, she had cleaned the house that morning, and we'd gotten the usual lecture about not getting the house dirty, and so here I am, absolutely totally dripping wet and so I get back to the house and I'm on the front door I mean at the front door and I don't go in because I'm not gonna get that house dirty and my mother's at the neighbor lady's house and somebody went to get my mother and she came and she said why didn't you go in I said well I <laughs> no, I wasn't gonna go in because because I was too dirty What's my point in that story? So she took me in the house right in the front, took all my clothes off, got me the bath, got me cleaned up and going. Here's my point. There are a lot of you that are standing shivering at the front door, and you won't go in because you got to get clean before you go in. You get cleaned up and dried up after you go in. You get cleaned up and dried up after you go in. It's not that you clean yourself up and then you say, here I am, Jesus, take me. I've cleaned myself up. No. he go in dirty. And he begins to clean and clean and clean. And you know, he, we don't get clean in this life, right? <laughs> we get cleaner, <laughs> we hope, over time. But we don't get clean. He says to Matthew, follow me. Matthew's as dirty spiritually as I was standing outside in the cold, soaking wet, dripping on the porch. And my mother said, go in, go in, go in. Jesus says, come in, come in, come in. Come in. What does it mean positively to follow Jesus? Look at chapter 9 if you've got your Bible open. Uh, Chapter 9, of Luke, at verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I think Levi had come to appreciate the truth of those words. What does it profit me if I gain the whole world and lose or forfeit myself? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. To follow Jesus is more than changing the way we think. It is changing the way we think about Jesus and about sin. It's a change of mind and a change of heart. It's certainly that, but it's also a change of will toward Jesus and following Him wherever He might lead. And certainly He will lead to obedience. It's to follow Him in His paths and His mission and His morals and His values. Christianity is about following Jesus in all of life. Not just attending worship services on Sunday morning. Not just attending a prayer meeting, or another small group during the week. Christianity is about following Jesus in all of life. So in response to Jesus' call, follow me, Levi left everything, and he rose and he followed Jesus. Now what came first, the leaving everything or the following Jesus? What was it, the attractiveness of Jesus, or was it that he just wanted to give up his sin? I think he he was so attracted to Jesus that he just got up and walked away from the tax booth. Because a new affection for Jesus will override and displace old affections for sin. In this case, an old affection for money. So I want to ask you this today. How how attractive to you is Jesus Christ? How attractive to you is Jesus? How attractive is Jesus the reason so many do not come to Jesus is they don't find him attractive. They don't feel a need for him. They don't feel a need for what he can do for them. Suppose you have a plumbing problem and uh, the toilet overflows and the washer drain overflows and you've got muck and water and everything all around and you call the plumber and you wait and you look out the window every two minutes to see if the plumbers come. And when the plumber comes, you say, Man, am I glad you're here. Why? Because you have an acute need. And the plumber is very attractive at that moment. Very attractive. That's what's happening to Levi. He has this acute need, this acute guilt. And Jesus looks very attractive to him. This kind of fits with the sermon I preached last Sunday. If we feel that acute need... Jesus will look very, very attractive to us. The way to have a great and growing love for Jesus is to have a great and growing sense of our sin. <laughs> it's really a piece of the same cloth. All right, that's the first point. Second point, The last point, you'll be glad. There's a more I said we had an astounding and, 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 and uh, conversion. But we've got a more astounding and irritating feast that follows the conversion. Um, In verse 29, we find out about the largesse of Levi. He made for Jesus a a great feast. Uh, It's a mega feast, uh, a mega feast, probably somewhat opulent because he was a wealthy man. These guys tended to be... Uh, uh, wealthy. They had extorted so much money, and no doubt part of the reason they were looked down upon is the houses they looked in. And Jesus is the honoree, and the guest, well, Jesus' disciples are there. Trust me, it's not mentioned here, but in, in chapter Matthew nine ten, His disciples are mentioned. It does say there's a large company of tax collectors and others. Uh, I think you can safely read tax collectors and other sinners uh, reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Now, we don't know exactly where the Pharisees and scribes were, but we know that. That as I said last week, these dinner parties tend to be semi-open at least, and people could walk in from off the street like the woman who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And so the Pharisees um, may be um, uh, in the, at the party, or they may be outside, uh, I'm not sure, uh, but they're there, and they know what's going on, okay? Uh, they're watching. Now, why the tax collectors and sinners? Well, I think there are really two reasons why they're there. First of all, they are Levi's friends. <laughs> he's, you know, he's a member of the tax collector's union or whatever they had. And, and he's friends with them. They're his friends. And he wants them exposed to Jesus. Why? Listen carefully. Jesus is the only religious person that he knows that will be interested in these tax collectors. If they go to the synagogue, what will happen? They'll be rejected. They won't let them in. Remember I said they had to give up their position in the synagogue. They were excommunicated if they became a tax collector. There's nobody else in the religious world that might be interested in them. The Pharisees certainly were not. And the Pharisees mount this very self-righteous protest. They grumbled at Jesus' disciples. Now let me... I'm sure E.C. told you this, but I'm going to just remind you. The Pharisees were the conservative right wing in Judaism of that day. They were a reform movement to get Israel back to where they thought it should be historically, religiously. They are the moral monitors of the nation. And their view was sanctification is by separation from evil. And of course, by that standard, Jesus failed. If you look back, and it's very interesting, um, Sally's reading Numbers right now, and uh, and and there's a time in the book of Numbers in chapter 14 where they grumbled against God and against Moses. And in Exodus 15, they grumbled against Moses and against God. And they're grumbling again, and they ask him a question, right? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, between the lines, they're saying this, Jesus, you should not eat with tax collectors and sinners. If you're the righteous one, you should not eat with tax collectors and sinners. We would not eat with the tax collectors and sinners, and we are righteous. Why not? Because in their world, shared meals symbolized shared lives. They symbolized intimacy and kinship and unity. As one man said, the taking of food has a social component as well as a biological one. And that's certainly true of the Lord's Supper. There's a social component as well as a biological one. Matter That's really good because there's not much biological benefit from this supper. The, for, the supper that this foreshadows, the eternal wedding banquet of Revelation 19, will have a wonderful biological benefit as well as the social benefit of fellowship with God. And so Jesus responds to this question because he knows what's going on with these Pharisees. He says, look, this proverbial truth in verse 19, those who, are, who have no felt need of a physician, you don't sense your need for me because you think you're spiritually okay. That's what he's telling them. The reason you're not excited when you see the plumbing truck go down the street is you don't have an overflowing drain. If you did have an overflowing drain, you'd want to honk your horn and go run the guy down and say, come to my house. But they don't know that. He says those who are sick need and seek a physician. Those who know their spiritual sickness, their spiritual brokenness. He's saying, look, you Pharisees don't have a felt need for me because you don't know your sin. These people you look down on know their need. That's why they're attracted to me. That's what he's telling them. In Luke 18, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, "'God, I thank you. I'm not like other men.'" So Jesus is blowing up another dinner party. Right? Levi's giving him this party. The Pharisees are saying you shouldn't have all those bad people in there with you. And Jesus is saying yes I should. I didn't Those who are healthy don't seek a physician, only those who are sick. And then he gives a very clear statement in verse 32 about his mission which is a stinging application of the proverb. What is his mission? I've come to call. I've come to call powerfully and effectively. I've come to call not the righteous, not the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the focus group of Jesus' ministry. Is it ours? He doesn't say... I've come to call repentant sinners or any other sort of self-prepared sinner. The gospel is not, as I say again, if you repent enough, then you can come to Jesus and he will accept you. Rather, I've come to call sinners to repentance, call them to myself, call them from sin. One of the questions I hope you'll ask yourself in response to this sermon is, how can I know if I think and act like a Pharisee? And by the way, I, I'll give you a little my, my own biography with Pharisees. I remember I'd been a Christian for a long time, I, 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 well, ten years maybe. And uh, I was reading when I was already in the ministry, and I, I was reading through the Gospels again, and I came with the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the Pharisees. Why is he always talking about the Pharisees? And then I looked in the mirror, and looking back at me, there was a Pharisee. Oh, I finally got it. I finally got it. Who do you invite to parties? With whom do you want to recreate? Who do you invite to worship? About whom are you excited when they show up for worship? Evergreen and Beaverton, where I was interim, had two homeless, semi-homeless guys. We needed them desperately. We needed them much worse than they needed us. Tony and Mike. We needed them. I was excited when I saw Tony and Mike. We needed them. How do you react to known or notorious sinners when they come or when you see them on the street? How do known sinners and notorious sinners feel that we react to them? What do you tell people the gospel is? There's a great danger for PCA churches to become first Pharisee PCA. There really is. Because we have this view that sanctification is by information and we have more information than everybody else. Therefore, we're more sanctified than everybody else. Not so. What we have at essence in this passage is the Messiah sitting at dinner with sinners. (laughs) It's a demonstration of God's love and acceptance it is an extension of God's grace, and it's an anticipation of the consummation when Jesus will sit and sup with sinners in the kingdom of God, and it's anticipated by this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, right? Because it demonstrates and it anticipates the final supper when people as sinful as me redeemed and renewed and complete. Uh, completion, are found dining with Jesus forever. So, who might Jesus call to himself? There's only one category of person that Jesus will call to himself. That's sinners. People like me. People like you. Anyone who knows his or her need. Another obvious question. Who might Jesus use for his own glory? Who might he engage in his work? If you had asked the Pharisees, could this tax collector become an apostle? Never, they would have said. Never. Never. He's too bad. Jesus saw it differently. (laughs) And if he could use a Jewish tax collector friend, he could use you. There are people sitting in every church I've ever known. I'm not good enough to do anything in the church. I'm too bad to do anything in the church. Surely God wouldn't want to use me to do something in the church. Keep telling yourself those things. They're not true. (laughs) They're not true. You mean God might want to use somebody like me? Absolutely. Matter of fact, God would rather use those that are weak. Remember the passage we read, 2 Corinthians 12? Uh, God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's love and grace are shown most ac- wonderfully when He uses the unlikely. Matthew was a great sinner who was greatly saved and then greatly used. So I invite you today come and dine with Jesus. He wants you to come, He commands you to come. Follow Him. He will lead you to Himself, He will lead you to help other sinners. He will lead you to that which is life indeed. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for the spiritual food you've given us here and uh, the gospel food you're going to give us in the sacrament and the food that you're going to give us in Revelation 19 at the eternal wedding banquet. Uh, Father, many of us in response to this passage would just confess, yes, I'm a Pharisee. Uh, Yes, uh, I have looked down on others. Yes, I've been unwelcoming others. Uh, Many of us would say that. But Lord, now that we know, we can embrace you more tightly, more wonderfully. Uh, I pray that we'll do that. That the fact that we are... uh, So sinful will not drive us away, but that we will see you as very attractive because you, O Lord, love sinners like Levi, like us. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.